Hi, this is Sean Benson from Harvest Church in Warrensburg, Missouri. I want to thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. For more resources, log on to harvestwarrensburg.com. Well, I, I don't know about you, but, you know, I, uh, I think it's fascinating when we look back at the first church via Scripture. Have you, have you ever just pondered the reality of the first church? What I mean by that is, you know, there was this great transition from Old Testament to New Testament where Judaism morphed in the acceptance of our Savior into Christianity. By the way, just in case somebody's been lying to you, that makes Christianity the oldest religion on the earth. They try to tell you otherwise, but actually it started with Adam and Eve. Same God, same Jesus. It was prophesied all the way back then, right? Christianity is the oldest religion on the face of the planet, no matter what they try to tell you, try to lie to you about. But I, but I look back at this great transition from Old to New Testament, and, and the truth is that the church, the early church, they didn't have a faintest clue what they were doing. They didn't have the faintest clue what they were doing. And, and, and maybe perhaps more importantly, they were a wild mess. And the reason I mention it is because the Ecclesiastes says that there's nothing new under the sun. And, and this never becomes more true than when I look back at the first church and I kind of compare it to who we are today. You know, and, 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 I, and I guess the, the point is to say this, like, you didn't think that it was just the 21st century church that was all a mess, right? Like, you know, the truth is they were a mess from day one. <laughs> it's like, it's always been a mess. You know, and so I just thought we would just comically take a look at a few things. Uh, you can pull that up on the board, that next slide there, that first slide. You know, just look at some of the issues that they have. Uh, can you read that okay? The, can you read it okay? I need to, I'll need to bump that font. I, just, like, I don't look back over my shoulder very often, but now I know. You don't know until you actually look. How many of you know racial division marked the first church? <laughs> and we understand where it comes from. I mean, the Jews against literally everyone. The Samaritans, worthless scabs. No, I don't even, I wouldn't even come. I don't want to talk to them. Like, Jesus, what are you doing talking to that woman? Even Jesus was like, I don't give what is of the, I don't give the bread of the children to dogs. And I'm like, oh, did he just say that? <laughs> see, see, listen, there's a lot of drama in the Bible. Some of you need to crack it open. Listen, it's just fun. there's some fun stuff in there. Like, wow, Jesus just said that to some woman. I mean, there was some massive racial, racial division such that they were like, uh, yeah, this Jesus thing, this whole like Holy Spirit came, that's just for us. What do you mean there are Gentiles out there? Forget about them, right? You know, so it's not just today. How many racial divisions have been there since the very beginning? You know, there were leaders, 1 Corinthians 5, a lot of scholars believe that the sexually immoral believer there was actually a leader in the church. I'm not going to go into the teaching behind that, though I'm uh, compelled to believe they are actually correct in that assertion. You know, so we have leaders in the very first church, I mean, just a stone's throw from Jesus already falling into sexual immorality. Well, you just thought it was megachurch pastors? <laughs> no, like from day one, we see these kinds of things, you know, denominational factions. You know, from the very beginning, you had people going, mm, actually, I interpret the Bible to say this, and my guys are right. Uh, also, I was baptized by Apollos. 
Like, oh, you were baptized by, that's awesome that you were baptized by Apollos, but I hung out with Jesus. So, you know, just, you know, no, I hung out with the apostle Paul and you don't know it yet, but he's about to write the whole Bible. (laughs) That was the guy, right? How many of you know there were denominational factions straight from the very beginning? Squabbles. Everybody thought that they were right and there's infighting among them, right? We good? (laughs) I'm tearing down some idols this morning, I think, maybe. <laughs> they, were, they were fighting among leaders, and strangely enough, and by the way, this is a concise list. This is not like a, a full, all-encompassing list of all of the crazy that happened. So yeah, probably you're beginning to think of some things right now as you, as you take a look at that list. But I do find it strange that the two options that we see there uh, actually <laughs> entangle the Apostle Paul in both scenarios. The Apostle Paul, who wrote, you know, 75% of the New Testament that we read, he finds himself in leadership struggles with people and in sin himself. It's funny. What do you mean the apostle Paul was in sin? I thought he was like, impervious to those things. No, he's a human just like the rest of us. I mean, remember Paul and Barnabas having the whole tiff? I don't think anybody would be able to look at the scripture and kind of go, yeah, I think that happened exactly as it was meant to. Seems like... Instead, there were sparks and flames in that relationship. You know, you have the Apostle Paul who goes to the Apostle Peter in front of all of the leaders, you know, and rebukes him in front of everybody. Peter, you two-faced piece of garbage. (laughs) Go back and read it. You're acting one way with the Gentiles, and you've got this whole secret life over here, but now that you're up here rolling with the Jews, you act like... You know, you don't want them to know about your secret life. He's talking, he's rebuking them right in front of everybody. I'm like, oof, like, ouch. I don't know that that's the way that should have gone, right? So they had leadership issues. There was prostitution. So they said, you thought your church was struggling? You thought, whatever church you came from, those of you who were transferred in, you're like, oh, they cut the youth department budget. That's why we're at Harvest. The youth, if I can't believe, they're next generation leaders. They cut the budget. So now I'm here where God help us if we have to cut the budget, because apparently that's the thing that causes you to jump ship. No, they had prostitution problems. You know, the Apostle Paul was like, like, can you imagine me standing on stage, actually, like as a 21st century pastor and be like, okay, all right, you guys, I guess you're not getting it. Uh, prostitution's actually not good. <laughs> like, like you, you know that if you join your body with a prostitute, that you're like becoming one with her. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're all like, yeah, this is, we, like, we kind of, we know that's a bad thing. Like, you don't need to probably preach that one from a Sunday morning. We, we got that one. That's pretty ironclad. Well, Paul had to preach it to them. Why did he have to preach that to them? Because there was prostitution in the church. Oof, gracious. Sexual immorality, of course, running rampant. You know, <laughs> works-based theology. I just put most epistles because if you read the epistles, most of them in some form or fashion are geared towards, hey, listen, uh, uh, we're not in the Old Testament anymore. Like, I know that was yesterday. I know it's hard to get your head around, but we're not there anymore. You don't have to do all this work. It's by grace through faith, right? Most of the epistles address that. I love this preaching out of selfish ambition. I know the Apostle Paul said that there were those who were engaging in the ministry. And listen, like, you understand, like, the time of the Bible was a persecuted time. So it's confounding to me that anybody would want to do the job when people are throwing stones at you. But like, so anyways, you know, but let alone these people who he says were doing it out of selfish ambition. So it's like, so in other words, like, let me reframe that for you. It was a real good job and they were doing it for the money. They were doing it for the status. They liked the honor. 
You know, like Jesus accused the Pharisees of liking the seat of honor. We have these pastors now coming online in the first church who liked the seat of honor. Apparently, they were doing it out of selfish ambition. And then the kicker is, and he says, and some of them, they're just going out preaching the gospel just to spite me. Like, what? What? I don't, I don't even know what that looks like. Uh, but I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that probably wasn't the right motivation. <laughs> right? Like, this is the first church. This is like, like I said, this is just a stone's throw away from Jesus here. You know, uh, preaching Christ out of jealousy. They had uh, infighting, division, lawsuits. They were taking each other to court and suing each other and, you know, and, and doing all kinds of things. Uh, drunkenness, 1 Corinthians 11. You know, he's like, hey, you all getting together and you're drink, you're, you're getting drunk, like off the communion wine. <laughs> Don't you have houses to do that stuff in? You know, I'm like, like, I mean, we just had communion this morning and, you know, it was juice unless somebody was praying extra hard over their cup, you know. <laughs> but can you imagine we're serving communion wine and somewhere along the lines, Bud gets a hold of it and he's like... <laughs> I mean, I know we're doing it a little different, you know, that it stand out a little more, you know, but at the end of the day, like we've got to kind of put ourselves into the New, uh, into the new Testament and, and peel it apart for what it is. Right? There are people getting straight, like these are Christians, like, do you know Jesus at all? And the apostles are having to show up and go, bro, listen, okay, uh, I thought that it was enough that I had to talk about prostitution. Like now I got to talk about drunkenness and smoking weed and all this other stuff too. Oh, did he just say that? Yep. Yeah, any intoxicant. Just in case you were tempted to think that the law in Missouri was a scapegoat for your sinful behaviors. Oh gosh, he just went right there. I was anyway, so it's nothing new under the sun. You know, demonic and erroneous doctrine. You know, you get into the book of Revelation and Jesus had a few things to say to those churches, didn't he? You know, one of them was, ah, you're tolerating demonic spirits in your church. You know, you're tolerating the spirit of Jezebel is that specific reference there. You're, you're, you're claiming doctrine that is contrary to me in the way that I moved. And, and listen, again, this is no all-encompassing list. It was just to get the wheels turning, just to get you to the place where you could fully understand that the church of Jesus Christ has always been a mess. <laughs> Sounds sacrilegious, doesn't it? Except that it's true. And the truth is, it ought to be freeing for some of us. Because these are the people that turn the literal world upside down. These were the churches that were planted a stone's throw from Jesus, you know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the midst of a wild revival, the likes of which I'm not sure we've even seen repeated yet. And they were a mess. They still had a lot of their humanity that they needed to get worked out of them. You know, and, and yet here we are, guys. 2,000 plus years later. And what that motley crew of people did has set us up for the success that we're walking in today. Honestly, set us up for the entire nation that we live in and the freedom and the ideals that we walk in today. All because this motley crew of busted up, crazy people that are like into crazy things that like, I just... When you start looking at the stuff that they were engaged in, most of us, we would be appalled. It just, and again, yet these are the people that God chose to use. That's humbling, isn't it? Like, the God of the universe is choosing to use people like this to change the world. And 2,000 years later, we get to sit in a free country and a free church and to preach the gospel that these guys died to present to us. 
I think if God can use those guys, he can use us, right? You know, he can use this motley crew. (laughs) What I find fascinating is that despite the crazy that we see in the first century church, and quite frankly, despite the crazy that we see in the church of the 21st century, you know, and listen, I, I'm, I'm grieved and broken every time I see another pastor fall, or another priest fall. You know, I just think, gosh, like, how can it even be? I don't understand. It breaks my heart. It's just, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But it's a reality, isn't it? And, and what we need to see is that in spite of all of this crazy stuff, God has chosen the church, us, this, to be his kingdom transformation agent on the planet. And he hasn't given us a plan B. (laughs) Much to the chagrin of some deconstructionists. He hasn't given us a plan B. Are we all right? And with that, I think it makes sense for us to probably somewhat define what the church is just a little bit so that we have some understanding to go with this reality that God chose us to change the world. Some people would say, and there's been so much, so much talk about this over the years. Well, the church, the church isn't the building, right, Nolkers? The church isn't the building. We don't go to church. We be the church. In fact, I've got a t-shirt at home that says, don't go to church. Be the church. It literally says it. I'll wear it one of these days for you because I look amazing in it. Like a, <laughs> not anymore, but anymore. No, you know, it's, there's, just, there's just, there's so much about it. And, and we've kind of whittled down the definition of church to uh, any believers who gather together. And I, and I think we kind of get it out of the, well, the scripture that says where two or more are gathered, then there I am in their midst. Well, that's true. And, and there's a certain part of that definition that does ring true. It's like, you know, when you gather together in Jesus' name, you know, there, there is a sense in which you are the church. Uh, but to be honest, like that's only a small part of what God actually intended and, and if all you're doing is meeting together with other believers over a cup of coffee, that's not the church. That's not the church. Jesus has given a, a, a very clear prescription or, if you will, even a definition that we can derive from the New Testament that, that, that shows that God intended, one, that we would meet together as Christ ones, as believers, you know, but that there was something else that was meant to come out of that fellowship, something more than just simply connecting with other people or fellowshipping with people, right? Something more than just simply having coffee. You know, and the truth is, well, I'll just say this. Many times over the years, other pastors, definitely, I would never say this, have used this joke and they've said, you know, ministry would be amazing if it wasn't for the people. Don't worry, I would never say that. I would never say that. <laughs> she reminds me of Jesus. <laughs> and out of your mouth, you just said. You know, yeah, ministry would be amazing if it wasn't for the people. Now, obviously, that's a joke, right? But, but, but the joke, I think, highlights this, this reality that we live in, doesn't it? it this reality that, that the church, this collective entity of believers, is made up of a bunch of uh, random and completely eclectic people who probably wouldn't have come together for any other reason under the sun, Some, most of us, right? Uh, it's, it's a group of 
of people of all kinds of different shapes and sizes, from uh, people who have had the most horrific past experiences, you know, all the way to those who are fourth and fifth gen Christian families who have some things figured out, right? Like it's in everything that's in between. And what, what gets me is, is that, uh, well, it's just, it's just a motley family. <laughs> That's what it boils down to. Uh, but what gets me is that it seems to be designed that way. It seems to be designed that way. In Matthew chapter 22, and obviously there's a lot that we can extract out of this parable, but Jesus is actually talking about the, the parable of the wedding feast, if you recall. You know, and, and in the wedding feast, the, the king sends out this request that, if you will, give me a little latitude, that, that all of the right people would, would come to the wedding of his son. And, and he sends out the invitation, but all of the right people refuse to accept the invitation. Now nah, they're too busy. They got stuff going on. They don't want to, whatever it is, you know, but they all deny it. And he says then to his servants, he says, okay, go out then to the highways and the byways and literally put the invitation out to anyone and allow anyone who will accept my invitation to come to this table and feast in this wedding and celebrate my son. And so, of course, they do that. And all of these randos show up. Uh, and the Bible literally says everybody who is, uh, lots of people who are good and people all the way from the other side who are evil, it says accepted the invitation and came to celebrate the son, right? In this wedding feast. Ooh, got loud when I did that. Sorry about that. You know, and, and so what you immediately begin to see, I believe what you, the, the parable actually is saying that this represents the kingdom of God. And so, uh, how many of you know in here that you actually now represent as ambassadors the kingdom of God? Right? So, I'm hoping to try to, that you can kind of see the parallel. Like, he's giving the, the, the parable of the kingdom. This is what the kingdom looks like. The kingdom is this motley crew of people who all come together, all different shapes and sizes, all different backgrounds, all different levels of sin and righteousness, and the smorgasbord, but they're the ones who said yes. They're the ones who accepted the invitation. And you have all of these people, again, who are lashed together in the name of Jesus who wouldn't have probably been lashed together for any other reason because we're all from different social classes. We're all from different educational backgrounds. We're all from, from different experiences. We all have different interests and likes. And yet in this room, we are all gathered together with this one thing in common. We love Jesus and we accepted that invitation. See, so uh, my point is simply to say like, it, it seems to be designed. Like the design of the church is that we are a motley family. Like the design of God seems to be that, 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 that we would all be varied and technicolored and, and multifaceted and all of us on different planes and scales and most of us a mess on some level. Okay. <laughs> And you see from the beginning of time that this church that was birthed, it's like if they were ever going to get it right, I think it was then in that period of time. They're like, all right, there's nothing. We're like, we're like starting fresh on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Like, what are we going to build? And man, it was a mess. And it's still a mess today. And so the point is this. Just because it's a mess, just because there are things that perhaps are offensive, just because everything isn't done exactly correct, you know, it, it doesn't mean that you get to throw it out. It doesn't mean that you get to deconstruct it. It doesn't mean that it's something that you can just 
crumble up and throw into the trash because it's just not working for you today. There are many a deconstructionist out there who will say something like this. They'll say, you know, I, I've kept Jesus. Jesus and I were tight, but I've left the church. Can I just submit to you this morning, you know, that, and it's obviously not anybody here, but perhaps it's somebody listening online. You know, if that's you this morning, if you have, you know, you believe that you're tight with Jesus, but you've left the church, disowned that thing, you're in sin. You're actually walking in sin and you need a big course correction. I think that'll become more clear as we continue this morning. Some people will likely object if, in fact, they're even online anymore. They'd probably just switch the channel right there. <laughs> they might object and say, uh, well, what I object to is the institutional church. And I felt like Wikipedia actually gave the best culturally relevant definition for that. I think I've got it on the board. Regardless, I'll read it for you. It says, an institution is a humanly devised structure of rules and norms that shape and constrain individual behavior. I, I would submit to you that that definition also sounds an awful lot like something else which we would endorse, you know, called culture. How many of you know if you lash yourself together with human beings for the long haul, culture is something that is naturally created. What is that? It's a natural set of parameters that keep the organization or keep your gathering looking like a certain way, right? And so, so the definition of institution uh, sounds very much like culture, uh, which I would submit to you is 100% unavoidable. You, you, you cannot avoid the creation of culture. If you've gathered together with other human beings, inevitably there will be rules that will naturally, whether they're stated or unstated, but there will be rules that begin to dictate the parameters for what it looks like for this particular people to be lashed together. It's called culture, right? So, so I, I, I understand what they're getting at, but I would also suggest that it's absolutely inevitable that culture will happen or that there are a, a, there's a, if you will, human devised construct that helps us to gather together and do what any particular group is set on doing. And, and again, I'll reiterate, while I, while I don't think that the New Testament church knew what they were doing at all, uh, how many of you know, like they hear Holy Spirit just like you and I do today? You know, and they, they see in a mirror, the Bible says dimly, just like you and I do today. Uh, it, our walk with Christ is a walk of faith. We just heard that this morning in our communion time. It's a walk of faith. Uh, a walk of faith means I can't always see. In fact, faith kind of dictates that I don't see at all. But I do believe. Right? And so they're actually approaching the formation of the New Testament church on faith, believing they're being led by the Holy Spirit but not really knowing what they're doing. Here's my bigger point. Even though they didn't know what they were doing, as sons and daughters of God, they were in fact being led by the Holy Spirit. And their leading then was captured in this thing called the Word of God. And while there are those who rebel against the, and I quote, institutional church, I want to submit to you this morning that most of what actually is being rebelled against is prescribed to us in this word. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit 
imparted to the original apostles and weaved into the foundation of everything that we do. Are you ready to take a look at that? Yes, pastor, we are absolutely ready. This word that you're giving is amazing and enlightening. Thank you. That was very encouraging to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we start in Acts chapter 2. For those of you who like your paper Bibles, and if you don't, raise your hand. Everybody? No, I'm just joking. That was a trap. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 for the duration of our time, so you'll be able to pat, or, uh, turn there and stay there. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, if you're there with me. Says they spent their time in learning from the apostles, keep that in mind, taking part in fellowship, sharing in fellowship meals, and in prayer. Many miracles and wonders were being done through the apostles, and everyone was filled with awe. And we say, first of all, do it again, Jesus. Come and do it again, God. We want to walk in, we want to wake up every day and be filled with awe at what you are doing and what you're doing at the extension of our hands. So we say, come and do it again. We receive the testimony, even as we just speak it today. But what does it mean that they were learning from the apostles? Again, we're talking about, we're reading this section in the book of Acts, which is rather general. We'll get a bit more specific as we carry on probably after today. But we're talking about this general capturing of this is what the first church did. This is what it looked like. This is the structure and the foundation, again, that everything that we're doing today is built upon. What does it mean then that they learned from the apostles? Could I submit to you that it meant that there were people who were educated in the Word of God and qualified to teach it who were in their midst and that they were sitting under their leadership and their tutorage? The answer is yes. And, and unless you're tempted to go, well, weren't they just fishermen and blah, blah, blah? No, yeah, they, at one point in time in their past life, they were fishermen, but we're talking about people who spent three and a half years of their life under the personal tutorage of Jesus Christ, having been sent out by his hand to go do signs and wonders and miracles in his name, who have seen crazy and amazing things and had a download direct from God such that people would look upon them and go, wait a second, I thought these guys were just fishermen, and then began to recognize, oh, no, no, these are the ones who have been with Jesus, right? These are the people that we're talking about, so it is safe to say we're talking about skilled, uh, uh, talented, gifted people who know how to teach and preach the Word of God, who understand the Word of God, can excavate those truths, and that there were those in the first church who were sitting under the teaching of the apostles, or teaching under, if you will, the qualified Bible instructor. And it's at this point that I want to submit to you that what we're seeing here is not a construct of man, but rather a construct of God. This is the model of the first church. This is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They were learning under the apostles. You know that Ephesians chapter 4 says that God gave some apostles. He gave some prophets. He gave some evangelists. Come on, who's my evangelist? All right, come on, help us, Jesus. We need some of those. I got one there. Evangelists, and then he gave some to be pastors. In the Greek, one can make a case for pastors and teachers, the fourth and the fifth there, to be actually merged, uh, which I think is, is why often you see that expression in the church today. But it says that he gave these fivefold gifts to the church for what? 
for the equipping of the saints. So it was God's design from day one in the New Testament church that there would be those who would be gifted by him specifically to bring leadership, to bring biblical teaching, to bring structure and comfort and so forth to the body of Christ. It's not an invention of man. And maybe I'm talking to the wrong crowd, but did you know that, they, that many people contest the position of pastor? Pastor is not even, that's not even biblical. Oh, it's, it's funny that it says something different here. <laughs> In the Holy Spirit breathed word of God, they're given to equip you. It's not an invention for man. Thank you, Jesus. Obviously, in addition to that, it says they were connected in fellowship. What I, what I want you to see, too, is, and you'll see this, of course, as we continue, but they were connected in fellowship, but it's not surface-level American fellowship. It, it's connected in fellowship and, and doing life together. You know, that's the kind of fellowship. It's like, it's like we're connected in a deep way where I could genuinely call you at 2 a.m. and you would genuinely respond because we have a love relationship. Because we know one another, we take care of one another. When it's talking about fellowship, this koinonia, like this is actually what it's talking about. You know? So they were together in this, this close fellowship. They did life together and they prayed together. How many of you know there's power in prayer? There's uh, an important reason why God called us to gather together and to utter something from our mouths in accordance with his will. He's calling us into partnership and prayer is an easy way to do it. You want to see God's will done on earth? You want to see his kingdom come? Open your mouth in a prayer meeting, right? So they're praying together. And I would submit to you that what we're beginning to see are the essentials, the essential foundation on which the church, the church, everything that we know was built upon. Let's continue. Verse 44 says this, all the believers continued together and listen, close fellowship and shared their belongings with one another. They would sell their property and their possessions and distribute the money among all according to what each one needed. Now, what I want you to know is that verse 41, which was the verse that immediately preceded everything that I'm now saying, verse 41 says, and, and then like immediately they added 3,000 people to the church that day. I'm like, whoa, come on, do it again, Jesus. He's added 3,000 people. So, so we know that there's at least 3,000 people now that this is talking about. Right, but we know that actually there's actually thousands more. This is just the one simple reference that immediately precedes this structure that's now being imparted to us, right? And so I, I say that because it gives us a little bit of preface to be able to understand what's actually being said here. So when it says phrases like they were in close fellowship or that they shared their belongings with one another, I need you to understand that they weren't doing that necessarily in this large group of thousands and thousands of people. You know, it, it is, it's a fair statement. If you read through all the descriptions of, and 5,000 were added to the church, and 3,000 were added to the church, it's a fair statement to say that there could be fifteen or 20,000 people all gathered together under the apostles' teaching in Solomon's portico in the temple. That's a big old church right there. That is a big church. So when it's talking about they're like, they're gathering together in close fellowship and they're taking care of needs, I need you to understand that you can't be in close fellowship with 3,000 people. 
it is actually, it's a hundred percent impossible. You can't do it. They, they actually say, and, and, then, and obviously a pastor is, is not in close fellowship with every one of their people, but they say that, that the best of the best pastor can only shepherd about 75 to a hundred people, a hundred on their best day, probably younger than me. You know, so if you can only pastor 100 people, there's absolutely no way you're going to be in close fellowship with 3,000 people. Why am I saying that? Because I believe what we're beginning to see is the, the unfolding of, of this, well, the first megachurch. This, this gathering together of believers in the thousands under qualified Bible teachers. And then the breaking apart in close fellowship with one another such that they became aware of the needs. They were in such intimacy with one another that they became aware of the needs of the group. Yes, we do know that they were selling land, selling second houses, and doing all these things. How many know there's some rich people in, in the world in, in that day? And they were selling second houses, lake houses, selling property that they weren't using. And they were taking and they were laying up those, uh, those resources at the apostles' feet. But why? Uh, so that they could plant the very first church and address the needs corporately as they saw. But I guarantee you that was only one facet of their generosity of which this is alluding to. And the other facet is they were meeting together in a smaller, more tight-knit, more intimate group, and they were more aware of the needs that were happening because they were looking into the eyes of the people who had those needs. And in that context, they were taking care of one another. I don't know about you, but I like the sound of that. I like the sound of that. Listen as it continues. Verse 46. I believe this is part of what we see here. It says, day after day, they met in a group. Where? They, that's, that's, that's really strange because I didn't think that God endorsed big buildings. Got somebody. <laughs> they, they met every day under the tutorage of the apostles, under the teaching of the, of the apostles, in the big building, in the corporate expression, in the temple, which were mighty more lavish than what we know of today, by the way, just so you know. Okay, are, are you seeing this? They, day after day, they met in the temple. So in a big group of thousands, they met together under teaching. They had their meals together in homes. Okay, uh, eating with glad and humble hearts, praising God. So on some level, they had worship in those homes. So even if they gathered together and they were like, what good thing has God done today for you? Right? How many of you know that's praise? You know, and we know that the Old Testament is so full of praise and worship that has instrumental accompaniment. I mean, even, even Jesus, uh, when he was giving the Last Supper, how many of you know at the end of the Last Supper, he was like, you know what, let's just sing a hymn together. Worship is endorsed and designed by God. You know, so here we find that worship is a part of what's happening in these smaller groups in their homes. And they're enjoying the goodwill of the people. And every day the Lord was adding to their group those who were being saved. Come on, Jesus, do it again. You know, the Bible says this. It says, how will they know the gospel unless someone go and tell them? You know, that's what the word says. How will they know the gospel unless someone go and tell them? And so interestingly then, as we put a cap on that, that verse 47, they were, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Do you know what that implies? That implies that somebody was opening their mouth and sharing the gospel with their sphere of influence. Okay, I hope, 
I hope that you're getting this. I want to review. They were meeting in the temple as often as they could under the tutorage and the instruction of qualified Bible teachers. They were meeting to the tune of thousands in the beautiful temple. And as long as they could, eventually they were persecuted to the point where they could no longer do that and they were scattered, right? But at least at this point in the writing of Acts, they were doing that. They were, they were again, sitting under the, the Bible teaching. We got that. They met in smaller group homes where they prayed together. They did life together and fellowship together where they got to know each other intimately, where they gave generously and addressed the needs that came up among themselves. You know, I would add that sometimes that's not money, but sometimes that's just education. Let's take a look at your budget. Now, some people don't want to hear that, you know, but honestly, I'd rather you teach me how to fish than to just hand me a fish. Because if you just handed me a fish tomorrow, I got to ask for that again. So teach me how to throw that rod and reel around, you know? So teach me how to budget. Teach me how to live within my means. I think that's part of recognizing the needs in the smaller group. Like, oh, I'm seeing this pattern in your life. You know, would you, you want to go get coffee and talk about that, right? Like, that's part of what we're seeing here. They know each other intimately, and they were generously addressing the needs, and they were preaching the gospel of the kingdom to their spheres of influence. That's it's funny. This sounds an awful lot like exactly what we're doing as a 21st century church. <laughs> Is it just me? Or, or does the pattern that we read in the very first church in the book of Acts look literally identical to what you and I are doing right now? We have the celebration that happens on Sunday morning. You're experiencing it right now. We're qualified Bible teachers. By the way, if you didn't know, if it matters to you, I have a master's in theology. If that matters to you, now you know. I've probably learned more after that because I've pursued Jesus through the study of the Scripture since then. You know, but if that matters to you, I'm a qualified Bible teacher. Right? So every Sunday we gather together, we're celebrating under the leadership that God has established for the bigger house. And we're getting ready to relaunch the fourth generation of what we call here destiny groups which are the smaller groups where you get to connect personally and intimacy, intimacy and look into the eyes of people who now know you and they know what's going on with you and they're praying for you and they're loving on you and they're generously addressing the needs that you have and there's discipleship happening as you wrestle with the Word of God and you testify of the, the, uh, the praises of God, the testify of the goodness of God in the smaller setting... See, we get to do that on now Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and I think Thursdays, but I'd have to look back and, 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 I, and if I, yeah, to make sure I remember that correctly. So three opportunities during the week to do the very same thing that is prescribed right here in Scripture. You know, and what's more, as I look out, listen, there's no question that uh, there are uh, man-made things here. You know, I don't know what they would be exactly. I mean, but there's, I don't know, somebody could point out something. And, and there's no question that there are uh, man-made things in all institutional churches all across the United States. Uh, but as I look out, I see a lot of churches that are doing something pretty similar to what we're doing. You know, maybe they don't all do it the same, but Baskin Robbins has a lot of flavors, does it not? We've talked about that before. Not everybody likes chocolate ice cream. Not everybody likes the style of worship that we do. That's okay. You know, the Lutheran church down the road is a great church. We sent Peggy, um, 
Forstat, thank you. I, all I could think of is you guys. <laughs> that Peggy. Yeah, we sent Peggy Forstad there uh, maybe a year ago now. You know, bless them. She's leading their choir over there. That's great. They're a part of the body of Christ. They just look different. Right? They're, I don't know, hand and wear an elbow or something like that. It's okay. Some people like chocolate. Some people like vanilla. It's fine. I prefer a little bit of Reese's peanut butter cups and some stuff in there, you know. I think you can see that that has supported me very well. <laughs> so I mean, we're not all doing the same thing, but, but, but I, I would suggest that most are doing something that's similar to this pattern that we find in Scripture. And, and so what I want to kind of bring out as we start this period is that, you know, we hear a lot about like, well, I've, I've, left, the, I've left the church, you know. And, you know, the Bible says, like the Bible that knew that we were a motley crew, like the Bible that knew that from the very beginning we were going to mess it up, like that we were going to get involved and like, just think things wouldn't go well. The Bible that knew that we were going to put structures in place that wouldn't work or that would be of man, like that, that same Bible <laughs> that, that knew all of that. I don't know what I was going to say. <laughs> the only reason that happens is because there's demonic interference. So pray against that. <clears throat> hmm. I don't know what it was. Blessed Jesus. Fill in the gaps. I'll just say this. The Bible, the God of creation who knew that from the beginning we'd be a motley crew. Boy, there's something on that. There's a point of resistance on that. Mm, Father, we break that in Jesus' name. Some demonic spirit that does not want me to say that. Hmm. Yeah, we break that in Jesus' name. The church is a mess. It's always been a mess because it's a bunch of people lashed together in Jesus' name trying to do the best they can to figure things out. So the church being a mess or the structure of the institutional church being a mess, guys, is not an excuse to walk away from it because the command remains. The command that was breathed by the Holy Spirit of God who knew exactly what the church was going to be the command that says, do not forsake assembling together. Why? Because I'm assembling you together for purpose. It's a part of my master plan. There are things that you are meant to accomplish that go beyond the fellowship of a cup of coffee. <laughs> you are meant to lash yourselves together with people in my name who you would have never chosen to be my instruments to go and literally bring transformation to the planet. It's more than just gathering. It's, it's the extension of what you even saw here. Signs and wonders, miracles were happening. People were talking. They were abuzz. Did you know that the Messiah has come? And they're sharing with their spheres of influence. And their spheres of influence were saying, yes, this is what I'm going after. This is what I want. This is what I've set my life towards. And they were sitting under the teaching and getting inspired and praising God and corporately coming together and doing something magnificent in the temple and then coming intimately house to house and breaking bread together and fellowshipping and connecting discipling one another and continuing to reach out, invite, and, and bless their spheres with this newfound thing called Jesus that they found, right? Like Jesus has lashed us together on purpose and for purpose. We're on a mission, and maturity looks like fulfilling that mission. 
We don't have an excuse, those of us who would say, I've left the church because, well, you know what? Here's the thing. <laughs> I bet if I could raise a hand, first of all, I would say, if I were to say, hey, uh, what's perfection look like? As many people as are here would give me another answer. That, well, the perfect church would look like this. It's subjective. It's subjective. We have no excuse to break the commands of God because we get offended. Because see, that's the other thing. If I were to ask anybody who's been in church for more than 20 years, probably at some point, you've gotten hurt by a church leader, you've gotten hurt by a congregant, by a church member somewhere along the lines. None of those things, guys, are excuses to disfellowship or to break the commandment to assemble together. None of those things are uh, a valid excuse for us to crumble up what God himself breathed into existence. You know, like, like offense is no excuse for that. The, the messy people that are around us, that's always what you hear, isn't it? Well, I don't mind going to church because they're all hypocrites. Right, that's why we're here. <laughs> right, like that's not an excuse to disfellowship because you're a hypocrite all by yourself watching TV on Sunday morning in your jammies. And that's simply what I want you to leave, what I want you to take home with you. This is God breathed. I mean, I, you'd have to point it out to me if there's man made stuff in there. I don't know, maybe they didn't do nursery like we did. I don't, maybe that's different. I, I happen to like intentionally investing in our children like we do. But, but so maybe that's it. I don't, you'd have to point it out to me. Otherwise, when I read the scriptures, we have modeled this church verbatim to what we read in there. It wasn't our design, it was God's design. And if God designed it, then I think he's pretty comfortable with what it is, and he thinks it's going to win the day. And we have no reason to disfellowship from it. But we do have every reason to take ownership of it and to make it as great as it could possibly be for his name's sake and for his glory. Amen? Father, this morning, first of all, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to take care of whatever spirit that is trying to steal my tongue. And we ask that you would loose this message as well to a generation of people who want to deconstruct their faith, which to a large degree means they're fleeing from the assembling together as believers, at least in the way that you've designed. I'm asking that you would reach them. And preemptively, I think this message preemptively was to reach people who would eventually be offended right here in this house and be tempted to disfellowship themselves. And Father, I thank you that you're going to use this word as a seed in their hearts to keep them from making a big mistake. We submit our lives to you, Jesus. We want what you want. We lay ourselves down at your feet. We exalt you and your ways, and we say, come, your kingdom come. Your will be done at harvest. Your will be done in our region, in our community. Your will be done over our church structure. Your will be done over our fellowshipping together, our close, in quotes, fellowship, our generosity. Your will be done over the sharing of the gospel, which we find prescribed there. Your will be done over our gathering together to pray. We're asking that you would have your way, Jesus, that we would see your goodness over these things in the land of the living. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you would like to contact us or would like more information about our church or additional podcasts or resources, please visit us online at harvestwarrensburg.com. We hope to see you soon.